0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue in our series, Confident Faith, so let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 21, verses 1 to 11, as Dr. Neufeld brings us a message entitled, The Child of Promise.
1: Most of us, even if we haven't read it, know the title of Charles Dickens' book, The Tale of Two Cities. The two cities are, of course, London and Paris, and the remarkable events that surround some very tumultuous times, events that would set the stage for the future of Western civilization. I think it would be in order to call Genesis 21 the tale of two sons, and what happened to them set the stage for all of civilization. You know, in Galatians 4, a major New Testament chapter which interprets Genesis 21, Paul calls one the Son according to the flesh, and he calls the other the Son born through promise. Genesis 21, of course, tells the story of a real historical situation. But the story of Genesis 21 can never be confined to to just this one historical situation. Our understanding of God and of what God wants of us is forged from this remarkable chapter. The nature of the covenant with God, what the true life of faith signifies, all of this comes from the events described here. But personally, this chapter ought to make us trust in God and not in human effort. I'm going to come back to that. For now, let's begin to read. I'll begin by reading Genesis 21, verses 1 to 7. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I've borne him a son in his old age. The words, The Lord Visited Sarah, start this remarkable story. Genesis wants us to know that we should think about the birth of Isaac as a visitation from God. I'm reminded of the second last verse in the book of Genesis. Joseph is speaking to Israel just before his death. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you will carry up my bones from here. That's to say, when Israel would leave Egypt, the very act of the Exodus would be seen as a visitation from God. Indeed, these words, God will visit you, are remembered in Israel. When Moses came back to Egypt and informed the elders that God would lead this slave nation out of Egypt Exodus 431 says and the people believed and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel they bowed their heads in worship See that phrase gets used again with the birth of Samuel In 1 Samuel 221 it says indeed the Lord visited Hannah See, in this case, we find that Hannah was barren, but God visited her and she became pregnant. Now, think about the pattern here. The phrase, the Lord visited, whether referring to the birth of Isaac or the birth of Samuel or the exodus from Egypt, in each case, the idea behind it is that God caused something to happen that would not have happened without divine intervention. Sarah conceives and gives birth at the age of 90. Hannah conceives and gives birth, although she's barren, and Israel comes out of Egypt, although Israel is a slave nation with no military power, and Egypt is the strongest nation on earth at that time. In each case, the Lord visited means that God showed up to do what could not have been accomplished on our own. And by the way, just so that I don't forget to come to the conclusion of this study, when we come to believe in Christ. When we're born again, this comes about because God has visited us. We could not have believed on our own because we delighted in sin and were enemies of God by nature. We could not have given ourselves a new heart, for this old heart was dead to God. God visited us. We've become the children of promise because of it. But I've gotten to the end of the sermon, so let's get back to Sarah. Hebrews 11, verse 11, commenting on this passage says, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. And that's it. God intervened and performed something that was not possible. God visited Sarah. Now, you're going to note that in order to emphasize this point, verse 2 tells us that Sarah bore Abraham a son in his old age. Abraham is now about 100 years of age, and God gave him the strength, shall we say, to beget. The whole thing is impossible from a human perspective. And furthermore, verse 2, further driving the point home, tells us that all of this happened at the time of which God had spoken, or exactly according to the timeline God had revealed. And we come next to the naming of the child, Isaac. You know, the name Isaac means laughter. And and you might remember that one year prior to that event, when God first announced to the couple that this would occur, Sarah had laughed in incredulity. It's impossible. And God, by insisting the boy would be called laughter, would emphasize that this is a matter either of the laughter of unbelief or of the joyful realization that this laughter of doubt has become the joyful laughter that this is our God. Well, according to God's directives, Abraham circumcises the boy when he's eight days old. And at the circumcision, Sarah again remarks, God has made laughter for me. After 25 years of following God into the land of promise, they learn that God never promises anything that he does not fulfill. What laughter. Let's continue to read. I'm reading Genesis 21, verse 8 and the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Normally weaning a child from breast milk in the ancient world would happen at around the age of three. It was the custom of the day. And in some places in the world, it still is, that the weaning of a child is considered a major milestone. And so you would throw a grand party, a great festive gathering in which family and friends, and sometimes even a small village would show up for the festivities. And so, if Isaac is three at this stage, then we also know that Ishmael, Abraham's firstborn son, would now be 17 years of age. For those of you who don't know the account, years earlier, when it seemed to Abraham and Sarah that they would never have a child, Sarah suggested that Abraham sleep with the household maid, an Egyptian woman named Hagar. And Ishmael is born from that union. And that's where I began. This is the tale of two sons— One son born in the natural way. Abraham was then a bit younger, and Hagar was in her prime years of fertility. Nothing impossible going on here. Paul will call this the child of works. And if you think about it, this is an awkward moment. According to an ancient Near Eastern culture, the firstborn in any household inherits the lion's share of his father's estate. Indeed, later, as God gave the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 21 verse 15 speaks directly to this very matter. It says, If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children, and if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, He may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn, but he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the firstfruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. Now, not only was that clear in the later law of Moses, we might imagine that this would have been the prevailing practice in Abraham's time. And so here we have two conflicting truths. The first is that the firstborn inherits the greatest share. But the second truth is the very reason that Abraham and Sarah set out on pilgrimage. God was going to bless the world through them, and this child was the child of promise to bring this blessing into the world. This was the child of promise. I can only assume that Abraham and Sarah would have made no secret of that fact. And so it must have become overwhelmingly clear that Isaac would be preferred over Ishmael. And from what we read later on, the entire matter deeply grieved not only Ishmael and his mother, Hagar, but it grieved Abraham as well. I'm telling no secrets when I mention that, that those of the Muslim faith. This matter is a greatly contested matter. Muslims, if you don't know it, argue that Ishmael, not Isaac, is the logical inheritor of the blessings of Abraham. And so modern Muslims see themselves as the inheritor of the blessings of Abraham through Ishmael. This is no minor matter of disagreement. Both Christians and Jews argue that Isaac is the child of promise. And for those who are not aware why this is so significant, the real matter is whether the promise comes in the natural, normal way or whether the promise comes out of an impossible situation. Does the promise come in the way of all flesh or does it come through a visitation of God? And practically, what does that mean when it comes to our faith in God?
0: One ministry we celebrate during our 60th anniversary is Laugh Again with Phil Calloway. It's a unique ministry that connects people to a God of hope and joy. What difference does your support of Laugh Again make in people's lives? Well, listen to this. Each morning, my children and I tune in. It makes us laugh. It sometimes makes me cry. It always helps us look to Jesus. Since we began listening, we've been through some very hard times as a couple. You speak a message of joy, profound and biblical without being stuffy. It helps us more than you could ever know. Phil doesn't dodge the sometimes harsh realities of life, but in the midst of them shows how applicable the scriptures are. And I listen daily for the laughs, the reminders of God's love and care. Please remember Laugh Again with your support. Your gifts make this important ministry possible. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: I'm reading Genesis 21, verses 8 and 9. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham laughing. And she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be the heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. It's hard not to immediately see the word play in the word laughter. First, Sarah laughed in disbelief. And then Sarah laughed in joyful faith. Then the child is called laughter, and now we see Ishmael laughing. At least that's how it reads in our English Bible. But it turns out the wording in Hebrew is, is just a bit more complicated. The Hebrew word that's translated as laughter in the case of Ishmael is a different word, and also it's a word that has a wide range of meaning. It can mean everything from entertainment to celebration to a contest in battle. In fact, the NRSV, or the New Revised Standard Bible, translates this word as playing. Those translators would have you believe that Ishmael was simply playing with his half-brother. But that's an impossible translation because whenever one translates a word, context determines the meaning of that word. You know, if Ishmael had only been playing with Isaac, Sarah would surely not have turned in rage, demanding he be removed from the house. No, no. Something else is at stake here. So the New American Standard Bible translates the word as mocking. Ishmael was mocking him, making fun of him, and perhaps he was even doing that in front of the guests who had come for the celebration. Now, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, describes exactly what happened here. So I'm reading Galatians 4, verse 29. So he says, But just at that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now. So Paul sees a parallel. Remember, Paul is writing at a time when Christians were on the receiving end of persecution from the Roman Empire and from hostile pagans. And Paul says that describes exactly how Ishmael was treating Isaac. We have to assume then that what was going on was not just laughing at him or mocking him. It was a deeply hostile action in which Ishmael was looking for a way to take Isaac out and to rid the world of his rival. He was aggressive, he was intimidating, and he was dangerous. And because Isaac is just three years of age, we have to believe that he must have been deeply frightened by his half-brother. And then during the celebration of just being weaned, something must have happened that showed everyone there just how dangerous this young man was. And that's what caused Sarah to react as she did. Things had never gone well between her and Hagar, mother of Ishmael. But now this was enough. She doesn't tell Abraham to just get Ishmael out of the house. No, no. She's much harsher than that. She doesn't call Ishmael by name either. She calls him the slave woman's son. Indeed, you may have noticed that although Genesis 21 has a lot to do with Ishmael, and yet the chapter never mentions him by name. He's called either the slave woman's son or he's called the boy. Later in the passage, he's called the child. But he's not mentioned by name. Indeed, even when God blesses the boy, still his name is left unsaid. So why is that? It seems that the Holy Spirit wanted us to know that there's something remarkable about Isaac, But not so with Ishmael. He's the natural man. Isaac is the man of the Spirit. I wonder if at this point you think I'm making too much of this incident. But listen, I am not. Indeed, that's precisely the argument that the Apostle Paul is making in Galatians chapter 4. Well, let me let Paul speak for himself. So I'm reading Galatians 4, 21 to 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? But just as at that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Now, I'm not going to do a full-blown study of Galatians chapter 4. I'm going to leave that to a time in the future when we will study the book of Galatians. But it should be noted that the book of Galatians was written to a group of Christians who were being influenced by a false teaching and a false gospel. You know, in the early church, the Judaizers were arguing that, that unless Gentile converts to Christ were forced to undergo circumcision and submit to Jewish dietary restrictions, and thus they would cut themselves off from their Gentile culture. I mean, they argued that unless they did that, they could not be saved. And in response, Paul says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? How is it that you fell for such nonsense, he says? And then in the fourth chapter, Paul argues that the birth of Ishmael and the birth of Isaac These births are an excellent example of faith in God's power versus faith in human performance. The entire nature of the faith rests fully in what God has accomplished and not in what human beings can do. And it's right here that that Paul puts his finger on the key issue. The Pharisees were people of the rules. They they loved quoting Leviticus 18, verse 5, and might I add, they quoted it out of context. But Leviticus 18, verse 5 says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. And from that verse, the Pharisees taught that the way to achieve eternal life was by keeping all the laws of the First Testament. And so they mapped out all the things that you must never do and all the things that you must do. And if you learn to be a good law keeper, then they would add rules to that, all things that you had to do to earn your way to acceptance with God. Now, if you think about that, all of that is the gospel of human effort. It's about what we should do to impress our God. So let's go back to Abraham and Sarah and their initial decision to have a son through Hagar. You see, God had promised Abraham that he would give him descendants as the stars of the sky. And then, rather than resting in the promises, Abraham and Sarah begin to imagine how it is that they might bring that about. See, for them, it was about what they must now do. And Paul is telling the Galatian Christians, if you listen to the Judaizers... You're acting just like Abraham did when he trusted in the flesh rather than in the Spirit of God. But all the promises of God, including our own salvation, well, none of those come about because of something we do. Rather, they come about because of something that God has done, something that seemed impossible in the first place. You see, God sent His Son. We didn't plan for the Son to come. He died for our sins. We didn't find a way to get our sins forgiven. He rose from the dead. We didn't find a way into the afterlife. He sent his Holy Spirit to draw us to Christ. We didn't find a way to come to Christ. Everything in the Christian faith depends on God and not on us. To God be the glory and not to us. This is the story of God and his grace and him doing the impossible in making us into the children of God. Hence, says Paul, when Sarah said, cast out the slave woman and her son, she was not just speaking for herself and her family. She was speaking for all the people of God through all the ages. It's a call for all of us to banish a religion based on human effort and human achievement and human anything and embrace rather a faith in God based on the miraculous saving power of God who makes promises to us, promises that he's able to keep. And that, I think, is exactly how we should understand this account. Ishmael's departure from Abraham symbolizes an utter rejection of human works and a complete reveling in the power of God. Each one of us are called upon to embrace Isaac, the child of promise, and to reject Ishmael, the child of the flesh, and that's the gospel. God so loved the world that he gave his son. As the hymn writer wrote, nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross, I claim.
0: John, maybe it's important for some of us to hear some examples of what it means to try and work out our own faith rather than rely upon God.
1: Yeah, I know that uh, sometimes, here's some examples, Ben, sometimes you get believers um, who say, you know, if I can pray more, I will draw closer to God. So in other words, we put the impetus On ourselves rather than grace, and so we say, you know, spiritual disciplines, you know, whether it's prayer, Bible reading, all that stuff. I'm gonna say that prayer and Bible reading are God's grace, and they are the means in which God uses grace in our lives, but they're not produced through our effort, but rather in response to the Holy Spirit who calls us to do these things that are for our own good. So, I think we always need to resist the idea of
0: human works. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow for this great series on confident faith right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. (music) Celebrate 60 years of Back to the Bible Canada in 2018. 60 years of ministry that took place because of your prayers and support. In celebration, we'll be announcing a number of events, activities, programs, firsts and special resources. The first of those is our 60th anniversary series with founder Theodore Epp and Bible teacher, Dr. John Neufeld. I know you'll be impacted by the sound teaching and inspired by the heart of Theodore Epp for this ministry and the ongoing faithfulness to his original mission and vision. And as our gift to begin the celebrations, we want to send you this very special five-message series for free. Just ask. And for those who can remember 30, 40, 50 years of ministry ago, there may be also some special moments to stir your memory. So call for your copy or to make a ministry gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.